show that remembers that the E4 website Flash animation game promoting Smack the Pony was basically snakes and ladders, but with a handbag to shake your dice in. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seemed to is writer Joel Morris. Joel, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Uh, what am I up to? God almighty, I don't know. I've been in lockdown. I've been up to Animal Crossing. I've got an awful house in Animal Crossing. You can find that. I'm a writer normally, but there's been less work. So yeah, I've made an awful house in Animal Crossing. It's really with my wife's playing Animal Crossing as well. And her house is immaculate and really well designed with really good things in it. And mine looks like my student flat and it's got guitars and record boxes in it. And it's really weird that in a virtual game, I've created exactly the same awful flat share I used to have before I met my wife. The most recent thing, I did was probably some Charlie Brooker stuff did antiviral wipe and things that's probably the last thing that was on telly that I've done that was fun get to write some lockdown content but yeah that and Animal Crossing that's what I do well I hope lockdown has also given you a chance to revisit your first choice which is going to be introduced with a song that I didn't actually realise I remembered until you mentioned this while we were talking and it is now seared in my brain again what's a nice kid like you doing in a place like this What's a nice kid like you doing in a place like this with those saddle shoes? Well, I must confess, you look as though you fell into the wrong address. What's a nice kid like you doing in a place like this? Why's a nice kid like you? Okay, that was Sammy Davis Jr., quite unmistakably, singing What's a Nice Kid Like You Doing in a Place Like This from Alice in Wonderland. Well, technically, actually, Alice in Wonderland or What's a Nice Kid Like You Doing in a Place Like This from 1966, not the Disney one. Joel, what are we talking about here? These are Hanna-Barbera's kind of knockoff little own brand versions of Disney. It's a really strange thing. These are in my brain. And in my brain, as much as The Jungle Book or Cinderella, when I was a kid, these were on the telly. And I think they were on the telly because Disney was never on the telly. And they were Hanna-Barbera things done. They were about an hour long. They were TV specials. I think this one and the follow-up was Jack and the Beanstalk with Gene Kelly, which I remember really vividly. And they were on the telly. They won Emmys for like best children's entertainment and things. So they're sort of quality things. They're about an hour long and they've got songs in them, but they're not by the Sherman Brothers. They're by Sammy Khan and people like that. And they're kind of wannabe attempts to do Disney, but on a lot less money. And of course, no one has any fond memories of them at all because they were on, they're probably on once. But they're one of those things I remember watching with my, my, I've got two brothers with my middle brother, with my younger brother there. And we watched them and we'd only have seen them once. But they went into our brains. The songs are quite catchy. And it meant that for years later, we'd sing the songs to each other, like you might sing The Bare Necessities or something. And people would go, what's that song? (laughs) Because they're not as good as The Bare Necessities songs. (laughs) They're kind of 60s novelty hits, like Rat Pack novelty hits. And they're a bit shit. And the animation was a bit shit. I mean, I'm I'm not being rude. Animation's really hard. But they were done on on a budget. So what's odd about them is they've got this huge ambition to be Disney, but someone's given them a fraction of the money and it looks cheap and it sounds cheap. Yeah, that's absolutely it. I mean, my main memory of them is they kind of turn up on a day like the 27th of December, you know, that weird hinterland (laughs) between Christmas and New Year. 
taking yeah. up all morning on ITV because they obviously didn't have anything else to show. And it's the fact that they had that kind of weird, like a Jamie and the Mackie Torch version of Psychedelia, but not even as committed as that. You know, kind of after the event, like a geography teacher's idea of Psychedelia. And they lodged in your memory because of that. But the main one I remember is, nobody believed me about this for years, the banana splits in Hocus Pocus Park, which is an <laughs> animated banana splits where they have to rescue a young girl from a witch. And I remember saying to people, because obviously I was obsessed with the banana splits, but I remember saying they were a cartoon once as well. And everyone was saying, no, they weren't. Don't be stupid. And then it wasn't until the internet came along that was able to prove it was, you know, I hadn't made it up. But it was that weird flavour to them. They're really odd. These two especially, the two Hanna-Barbera, the Alice in Wonderland and the Jack and the Beanstalk. And it's Gene Kelly and it's him doing Anchors Away. He's like matted into cartoons and things. It should be great. And it's kind of not because it's not as well done. Apparently he was really pissed off when he saw it and said, oh, this is a bit cheap. But there's a real feeling of them being a bit Johnny come lately. They're kind of hip. They've got that sort of rat packy vibe to them, but with psychedelia bolted on. And when you watch them as a kid, you're aware, even though you've grown up with the monkeys and Batman and all that 60s culture, that they were a bit square. But you ate them up because it's really important to remember this. There weren't cartoons on the telly very much. So you watched anything that was animated at all. Absolutely anything. Because they didn't put Moana wasn't on at Christmas. Very, very rarely there'd be Disney time was it the, the treat at Christmas was Disney time to watch some clips and maybe maybe three of which would be cartoons and the rest would be about a cat and a dog getting on a lorry or something <laughs> and it, would, it was just the, oh, bits of candle shoe or, or the return to which mountain it wouldn't be the stuff you wanted so cartoons were like crack and this was the real methadone the rough street grade cut with flour and bloody bleach version of what you wanted to see was the sword and the stone but you watched this and because it was on you remembered it and I can't get over how much I remember these and I probably only saw them once you're right to say they were square as well because I've been looking at some of the other ones they did and you know these were aimed at kids it was things like Daniel Boone the Count of Monte Cristo Davy Crockett (laughs) on the Mississippi I don't know whether that's some expanded universe thing but they are the sort of things which I've talked about on here a couple of times where adults think oh children like that and they don't yes this is a definitive version of that and what it is is you watch it and I, I had a quick flick through the one I really remember vividly is Gene Kelly Jack and the Beanstalk which has got a song called What Does a Woggle Bird Do in It which literally makes no sense because the actual refrain is a woggle bird walks and then sometimes it sounds like a woggle bird wogs which is not a good thing to say and it's awful awful 60s novelty hit that just is still in my brain will not go they were really quite shonky you watched them because that was all there was that was on and you remembered them because you just were desperate for anything at all but what you're watching is definitely something that an adult thinks a child will want i mean the gene kelly one winning the emmy for best children's entertainment thinking well it's adequate children's entertainment it's certainly not as good as mary poppins or anything and i remember really vividly being told to watch things that were for kids as a kid and not really enjoying them i mean even good stuff i didn't really like wizard of oz my mum and dad would say watch the wizard of oz and i went this is a bit creepy and weird and and clearly not for me it's old-fashioned it's for them it's for their and I, i have to remember this when i am watching things with kids now to go things i liked they won't necessarily like there'll be a creepiness to them because they're old-fashioned i remember watching wizard of oz and going remember you don't like this because when you're older you'll be told to be nostalgic about this remember you didn't really like it i remember the first time i saw time bandits that it blew my head off and i went this this is the thing i wanted to be on when my parents said there's a thing for kids on because it was for me and it was as fast as my generation and it was sort of spielbergy and epic and big what i didn't want was songs written by rat pack songwriters 
who'd written Three Coins in a Fountain and Gene Kelly, who isn't for me at all. He's sort of doing a Dick Van Dykey thing in this, but it was just this feeling that you'd sit down and quietly watch something which your parents would enjoy, but it was aimed at kids. And it makes you realise how brilliant Pixar is and Marvel is at doing family entertainment now that grown-ups and kids can enjoy at the same time. Because I remember there being a sort of duty about sitting in front of one of these cheap cartoons where the backgrounds kept slipping on the rostrum camera and they were just not very good and you could tell they weren't very good because you'd seen snow white at the cinema so you knew what the bar was you knew how good i'd seen pinocchio i knew what a good cartoon was and this was clearly a a sort of oh this will do kids thing and it was cheap and it's not as funny as top cat well the whole thing of telling kids what they like i think is exemplified by two of these that i've never seen that i really want to see because they are so badly conceived there was a lost in space (laughs) one in the 70s where the only thing it had in common with lost in space was jonathan harris as dr smith and a cartoon of the robot called robon for some reason who are not (laughs) the characters you retain if you're aiming it as kids really but also they tried to do i think this was intended to be a pilot for a series was gidget makes the wrong connection which is gidget the teen surfer girl from the late 50s early 60s surf movie franchise of the same name who no (laughs) those films are great i love them i used to love watching them on itv on bank holidays when i was a kid that was the 80s though this was the 70s and they were trying to make her into a kind of action hero with animated underwater sequences that just seems like entirely wrong. It's telling it's not in the complete Gidget box set and the TV movies yeah. from the 80s and 90s are. There's a sense of ownership for the stuff that you really love from being a kid that you hold into your adulthood. The stuff that got it right. And I'm a huge Disney head. I love those classic Disney cartoons. I think Robin Hood and Sword in the Stone. They're brilliant. And I like them and they're clearly really good and they're of a certain quality. But I think kids know when stuff's a bit shonky. And the generation of kids coming along now who've grown up with Adventure Time and The Simpsons and Steven universe and incredibly sophisticated high quality pixar movies they've only been given great stuff and it's so funny to look back at what was seen as great kids entertainment back then and for god's sake i mean these hanna-barbera cartoons they are being made hanna-barbera are great it's being made by a good studio by good animators but it's just a sense of it being a bit of a knockoff they've just done it as cheaply as possible it's not as good as really watching a proper movie and i think as a kid it was the one of the first things i'd watched and then learned the songs from that i thought this isn't very good which is quite a revolutionary thing as a kid the first thing you watch and go ah this isn't very good rather than going oh it's rubbish or just not watching it but you watch it and go this is a bit substandard and weirdly i think maybe that's why i remember it the first time i watched something and laughed about it my brother that wasn't very good it was a bit awkward it was a bit embarrassing a bit cheesy and that was different than watching batman which was excellent or the monkeys which was (laughs) great or the space sentinels which is awesome yeah it was watching something that was a bit shonky and not for us and then we just got maybe it was a bit camp's the wrong word it's clunky it's the most clunky thing i remember from my childhood okay well we're going to your next choice now which i was going to say these are animations that definitely aren't for kids but there were some variations on that which we'll come back to anyway see if this rings any bells do you sometimes feel the urge to take it out on other people or that it's time to hit back that your world's turned upside down or that it's time to turn the world upside down do you have secret fantasies and desires are you on the lookout for something new something truly mind-expanding. Then check out the new season of Formations beginning this Saturday here on Channel 4. 
Okay, that was a trailer for Formation, Channel 4's late night animation slot. Well, again, I say late night, it wasn't always late night. Joel, fill us in on the background here. Formation, I, actually, this is related to the Hanna-Barbera thing. I was a big animation head. I liked cartoons and drawings and stuff. And I liked drawing. I was a cartoonist as a kid. I, I liked doing it and trying to make little films and stuff. And I loved on-screen tests where they had like young animator of the year and they'd show you how it was done and things. That stuff fascinated me, Morph and, and Ivor Wood and things. And I grew up loving animation. I went to art college and went to art I chose my art college because they had an animation course there because I wanted to do it and I remember as a kid there wasn't much animation on television and what there was you loved so you watched all the Hanna-Barbera's Tiche Turtle and Goober and the Ghost Chasers and things you watched them because they were not only they good and funny and I still will defend Scooby-Doo as just a great piece of writing they were good but they were animated so they were for you they didn't look like stuff for grown-ups so the, it was definitely yours and it belonged to you and an effort had gone into it. And I used to get really annoyed when TV programmes would have an animated title sequence and then live action the rest of it. And I'd go, oh, fuck, I thought it was going to all be cartoon. I thought Dad's Army was going to be about triangles. I'm so annoyed it's got humans in it because cartoons are great. <laughs> and I took that into getting older and I started to get into more and more animation and really <laughs> via Rolf's Cartoon Club and Derek Griffiths' sort of uh, film fun and things. I was into Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers and Merry Melodies and things. And then when Channel 4 started, they suddenly started showing art house animation late night as fillers BBC2 used to do it as well actually they'd show stuff and it wasn't like any animation you'd ever seen it was really I mean good and avant-garde and sort of slightly what I'd later call sort of NFT BFI curated difficult stuff so it's where you see Jan Schwenkmeyer and, and Czech animation and you sort of understood it because you'd sort of grown up seeing things like the mole and stuff so you understood that there was a certain amount of cartooning that wasn't Disney and wasn't Hanna-Barbera but was about was it tower blocks advancing on small woodland creatures <laughs> and uh, allegories for Stalinism and then these would be on late at night adult cartoons and formation I used to just set the tape for every night when it was on and if I liked the animation I'd keep it and if I didn't like it, I'd tape over it and I just built up like people do with pop videos I just build up tapes and tapes and tapes of interesting award-winning Canadian animation and I loved it because they were on the end of videos I'd watch them again and again and again so I've got as much fondness for The Beard narrated by Willie Rushton as I've got for Wallace and Gromit I saw those sort of slightly avant-garde one-person arty animations as much as anything else I love them well that's the interesting thing about how close that brought all of those things and mainstream recognition because there was a lot of that weird stuff like you mentioned I mean there was that brilliant Smith and Jones joke from around then where there's a transmission breakdown <laughs> that said sorry we can't bring you the award winning Czechoslovakian animation the bear oh hang on that was the award winning Czechoslovakian animation <laughs> yes. the bear but it was in the popular discourse that yeah. this really weird avant-garde stuff there were filler material it was really weird that you used instead of filler material instead of going to like the potter's wheel or a repeat or something you'd show avant-garde stuff that should be in galleries it was really weird and it did that thing someone said about the Beatles that the reason that Revolution 9 is a revolutionary artefact is it put an avant-garde artefact in everyone's home it's piping art into people's homes and I think that you wouldn't show live action avant-garde installation art but because it was animated it could be on in seasons on BBC2 and it could be late night on Channel 4 and Formations was a huge deal because I saw stuff there that, that would never have been on television if it hadn't been drawn or plasticine. And yet there were kind of more in inverted commas innocent things in it. I mean apparently Yellow Submarine was once shown under the Formation banner which I don't remember was but it? I can remember that happening but also Creature Comforts was apparently first shown in the Strand and it's amazing to think that's still a thing now. If you manage to go to the cinema during that brief period when 
they reopened last year. Before the adverts, there was a new creature comforts about lockdown. Yes, you forget that when Nick Park and Ardman, you knew them from Morph and stuff, but when they first came out, they were very, very clearly connected to the avant-garde formations thing. Yes, I remember that. And the idea of creature comforts, which is sort of Martin Parr-style documentary making done with plastic animals, is a really avant-garde, weird, disjointed, alienating idea. I had a VHS of Ardman's early work with things like Ident with Arthur Smith on it and Next, the Shakespeare thing, and, and I think Wallace and Gromit may have been on it, Grand Day Out may have been on it as well. But they were all part of the same thing. The idea was you it would be avant-garde stuff and that would be mixed up. And Nick Park came from that tradition. It's really weird when people watch A Grand Day Out now, the first Wallace and Gromit, because it's paced not like yeah. a fast-paced modern costume. It's paced like avant-garde Czechoslovakian platicine animation. <laughs> it's slow and gentle and a bit weird. And he's not been trained by the Disney stroke Simpsons school of story beats and things. It's quirky. And these were all made by one person. There were some I've never seen since that I'm still haunted by. There's one called Across the Atlantic by Rowing Boat about a couple who sail across the Atlantic as a couple. And it obviously takes them years. And it's obviously not real, but it's an allegory for life and death. And it's absolutely magical. It's a beautiful, beautiful, possibly French or French-Canadian animation that's as good as any short story it's a piece of sort of avant-garde literary fiction. That's great. Uh, Raoul Sauvé's Harpia was on there, which is one of the most horrifying, re-photographed monster movies I've ever seen. And all this stuff went in and became part of what I thought film and TV was. It wasn't ghettoized off as part of your animation course. It was on the telly next to The Late Show and things. You'd stay up late and you'd watch that and then you'd watch some avant-garde French cartoons. <laughs> it's brilliant. I was trying to think of when it kind of did sort of, sort of faded from regular showings on on TV and I kind of think it was around the late 90s because now I have to stress here I'm using Adam and Joe as kind of shorthand for this as like a figurehead for <laughs> an attitude where there was a wave of people that emerged around then who loved all this sort of stuff but liked to make fun of it as well I mean Chris Morris is a great yeah. example of that with all you know the gangster rap on his Radio 1 show which he clearly knew a lot about but also made fun of at the same time the problem is yes. that then makes things into a joke it was like the way I never quite got on board a jazz club in the fast show because you know if you like jazz <laughs> it is it gives people an excuse to sneer at it and I think that sort of thing ironically coming from sneering. people who love this stuff kind of gave people license to mock this stuff which meant that it then went in harder and you got those weird Channel 4 strands late at night like the Camcorder Collective and so on which are quite alienating and exclusionary yes. and it kept people away from all this stuff and I think that's really when it happened yes you forget that a lot of those people who were taking the piss out of stuff I was taking piss out of arty stuff because they loved it because it was exactly because they were staying up late watching it as well so Adam and Joe you're right the animation and the puppetry in there is very very formation very the kind of thing that would have been on Channel 4 and Trevor and Simon taking the piss out of avant-garde theatre oh they did a large door parody on going live because (laughs) and it's because it was on telly so they could do it because they'd seen it and they could assume that at least some of the audience would have seen it so you were taking the piss out of arty stuff and then eventually it became a fast show was really good at taking the piss out so art house and stuff like that but what it eventually became you're right is a way of people saying i dismiss that when the only reason that it was on there was because charlie hickson or paul whitehouse or someone had seen it and liked it yeah it then becomes a sort of thing that oh the cool kids think this is funny and you went yeah yeah it is funny that there's jan schwenkmeyer animations about dancing meat but yeah <laughs> I, I don't know because yeah i suppose it linked in with that sort of pop videos were full of animations a sledgehammery kind of thing going on but i think it's disappointing they're not on anymore because that's the other thing is i don't know what the current state of avant-garde animation is i bet it's brilliant the closest you get to 
to them is when you go and see a Pixar and they've got a very, very well-budgeted, solidly narrative short beforehand. Is the only time I get to see short-form animation in any kind of prestigious context is a supporting feature for a cartoon movie in the cinema. But I miss four-minute animations about people whose beards try and kill them <laughs> and, and sort of Bill Plimpton musicals. I miss that because you never knew what you were going to get. It was more like radio that a song would come on and it might be your favourite new band or it might be something you didn't like. But it was only a few minutes long. They were, they were usually the length of pop songs. So it was a bit like sort of a late night radio show that had animation on it. I, which I just love that kind of curated thing. I kind of miss it. And isn't it weird that that used to be what we exclusively associated Channel 4 with? Not just animation, but all kinds of uncompromising programming. That it, Now it's just no disrespect to 4 in a bed, but that's all it is all day long. Hey, Taskmaster really pushes the boundaries. I think, True. It would be amazing if it becomes the Taskmaster channel, which is what it, it sort of is in my house. <laughs> What's Trust Channel 4 on for? Mainly for pottery programs and Taskmaster. Well, you've actually given me a good into your next choice because I wonder if they might actually adapt this, at least in principle, for Taskmaster at some point. I was amazed to find an advert for this, but I have, and here it is. Shoots Away is so much fun, your kids may never stop playing it. Look through this viewfinder, pilot the plane over a target, and drop an air rescue parachute. Shoots Away! God darn it. Shoots Away! Okay, Dick, we got it. Shoots Away! God! Shoots Away, the air rescue target game. Shoots Away! Shoots Away! <laughs> Dick, can we go home now? That was Dick Van Dyke playing Shoots Away in 1977. Joel, he wasn't the target audience, was he? Well, obviously, it's all about targets for Shoots Away. (laughs) Uh, The target audience was my family. Growing up, we had rules in our family about what you could ask for as toys. And there's a really strange thing that's been lost as well, which is there were catalogues in the house, either the Janet Fraser or the Argos catalogue or whatever. And they were usually the same every year. Toys didn't churn like they do now. So basically, Mr. Frosty would be in there every year for 10 years. So what you were supposed to do i imagine was collect the set collect the 11 toys available to children of your generation and either your friends had got them or you got them but the rule in our house was you were not allowed anything that either plugged in or used batteries and it was never quite clear why this was it's a slightly uh, maybe class-based we weren't the sort of wooden toys sort of middle-class family like that but i think there was a sense that it was a scam that batteries were a way <laughs> of someone making money and we're not going to fall for that because a toy doesn't need batteries so we were banned from having Scalextric or big track or anything i think they crumbled with merlin at some point we had when the computer games came out there was no way of getting around it so we had a handheld game and watch and a thing like that but before then it had to be analog not because of the planet or anything. it was all plastic <laughs> but because no one in my family is going to be conned by big battery and so we had shoots away and shoots away was the closest you could get to a video game without there being any video game components involved so it was a an eyepiece on a stick and you look through it and there was crosshairs so immediately it's the best thing ever it's basically battle zone and the crosshairs see through a series of mirrors like a periscope what's below the eyepiece which is a disc like a plate that's on a clockwork rotor like a record player and it goes round, and that's the landscape and the landscape was bridges and trees and things like that and there were people who needed rescuing and you dropped from a model plane little parachutes which were weighted off the eyepiece with a gun trigger and it would rescue the people but it was a video game a target video game that was entirely clockwork so it was allowed in my house 
and if I still if I had one in the house, it would still be working. That's the other thing as well. Nothing could go wrong with it. It was an unbreakable <laughs> game, and it was the closest to having an amusement arcade I was allowed because it's a shooting gallery basically. And obviously, the first thing we did was we worked out there was a cardboard disc that depicted the people who needed rescuing. You could quite easily replace that cardboard disc if you got some cardboard with one with people who needed bombing with tanks or spaceships and turn it into a thing where you drop bombs on people. And that was obviously it was endlessly customizable. It was like Roblox. We were sort of making our own versions of the game. But I just played with that for ages. It was really good. I mean, shoots away is great. Well, I think the impact of it is measured by the fact that, as far as I can tell, it's actually properly titled with five and a half exclamation marks. There's one that yes. doesn't really count. It's kind of like <laughs> fading off the edge of the box. They weren't exaggerating. It's well worth that many exclamation marks. If I had it now in in my office, I'd be playing it because it's really good. <laughs> it's got the simplicity of, of like if there was an arcade machine. If there were a scramble, I'd be playing that all day. It's got that simplicity to it. It's fucking great. But yeah, we had loads of those games. We had Crossfire, the ball bearing gun game, and we had Stay Alive, the one where you pulled sliders and had marbles in it and frustration and all those things. Anything clockwork or where bits of plastic moved. But we never had, like, I don't know, a remote control helicopter or anything. That was inconceivable that we'd own a hovercraft or big track. That was literally something that Rockefeller would have. I've talked to my wife about this, about growing up in the class where things were not for the likes of us and things with batteries and wires were not for the likes of us. <laughs> I don't know who had them. Other kids at school can have those, but you're not having those. You're having clockwork stuff. That's important. Well, there was a variant of Shoots Away that you wouldn't have been allowed, which is Night Rescue Shoots Away, Whoa. which had the spotlight so you could play it in the dark. Oh, obviously, the first thing we did was strap with sellotape a torch to the top of it and made our own. <laughs> we were allowed a torch because that's not a toy. So yes, I remember sticking a torch on it one Christmas. That was one of the approved Christmas presents. You'd get a roll of sellotape, some pens and a torch in your stocking. And I remember sellotaping the, the torch to the top of it. I'm trying to remember what the cracking point was when we first got batteries. It might be Merlin, it, or it might be Dark Tower the first like computer oh, dark tower. and that was like incredibly expensive and i remember my parents talking about it as if i'd sort of say could we go to mexico <laughs> um, and we got it as a joint present for all, all three brothers we got that and it broke that was it it broke and we took it back to the shop and i swapped it for a zx spectrum and never looked back <laughs> that was the gateway drug for computer games but yeah shoots away was great there were loads of those games there was a brilliant thing called, was it called ricochet racers i didn't have that my cousin had that and it was a gun with cartridges into which you could put matchbox cars so it was a gun that fired cars which i think if you're talking about like someone brainstorming what will a boy of the 70s buy and the answer is a gun that fires cars <laughs> again actually that no i don't remember i think they might have had a battery in it so we that, i remember asking for that and being told no the really weird thing culturally about shoots away though is that i mean it was an american game originally i think marks made it over here but it was obviously very much the acceptable face of that big 70s disaster movie craze thing. Because, you know, you had games yes. like the Jaws game and the Bermuda Triangle game. This was a bit more kind of like positive and upbeat and polite. But weirdly over here, it chimed with there was, again, this was something that adults told you that you liked that you didn't. But there was an obsession with skydivers, the Red Arrows, parachutes, yeah. all kinds of people like that. And it kind of like tied in with that. Not that I ever had any inclination to like any of that, but it was in the air. Yeah, but, but because it was what they made everyone on Blue Peter do, is <laughs> threw Janet Ellis out of planes. I remember thinking it was normal. It's really weird. It's a bit like skiing, which for some people is normal. And for me, you go, what? You do what? And in the 70s, people, my aunt said, I'm going to do a skydive. I'm like, what? 
You're going to do... And, but it was normal. People were doing it all the time. For me, that's something that happens in Bond films. It's not something that, that normal people can do. But yeah, there's a parachutist on the front of Shoots Away. And it looks... Actually, the cover art looked a tiny bit like sort of a Jeff Love Great Songs of Disaster movie themes. It had that sort of painted thing. And it, it linked in with that kind of feeling. Everyone was into Air Sea Rescue. I remember having the Fisher-Price Adventure people. Yes! They were great. They were, they were Fisher-Price's attempt to do Star Wars figures. Kind of that scale. And that was a rescue set. There was a, a, a sort of rescue plane and a rescue dog and little sleep bags and things and it was all to do with rescuing people who'd done dangerous sports very 70s very very 70s early 80s but yeah shoots away was definitely in that world again no batteries in the fisher price adventure people so you're allowed well them. i had this kind of fisher price adventure people great outdoorsy thing which is sort of like a you know a dormobile with dangerous sports equipment and you know motorbikes <laughs> on. can you guess what one of the accessories bill and dean had was that's right. It was a parachute. Oh, obviously, because they're going to do parachuting. Everyone loves parachuting. We were all doing it all the time. Yeah, it's, it's odd because I think, yeah, you'd watch it on TV and it's a very American thing. I don't think anyone, I don't think I ever expected anyone over here to be doing that. I remember the, the excitement when a dry ski slope opened in Milton Keynes and went, what? There's a, sp- <laughs> you could do it because Britain's not designed for these kind of things. It was like that that world was coming to us. The world of the Rockies and outdoorsism was coming to here because they, they built an indoor ski slope. Again, I still look at that stuff and go this is literally the thing that a different species does than me action and adventure and mountaineering that's not anything humans can do well basically my yardstick for that is if it's something that noel edmonds did on a special (laughs) (laughs) specific to that era he was always like skydiving things like that wasn't he yes because he had helicopters which again (laughs) no one has it's really strange all these things that that people have when you were growing up and you went i don't think i was about to say i've been in a helicopter i don't think i've ever seen a helicopter above in the sky and yet it was a normal thing of on television people were near helicopters and skis and parachutes all the time it was the paraphernalia of that kind of tv action actually i tell you what shoots away shoots away is the kind of vulgar game that would be on blue peter as it would be acceptable and blue peter might show you how to make your own shoots away but it's very blue petery it's not magpie it's not tiswas it's not chaotic it's helping people i imagine that the people who are being dropped were paid for by people collecting tinfoil and lids it's definitely a sort of helping people out bring and buy sale of a game <laughs> the determination not to even though kids all had cap guns and stuff and everything was the, to not put violence in things when lego didn't make brown and green lego because you couldn't so you couldn't make a tank the determination to not give kids the tools to do bombing and then the first thing i'd always do is rip off the thing that was about rescue and turn it into a bombing run i don't know what the lego space memo meant to be holding that wasn't a gun it was obviously a scanning device or something. But you'd immediately go, that's a laser gun. And it was sort of fighting a losing battle against how much, how violent films for kids had got. As soon as the arm comes off in Star Wars, it's all over for keeping kids away from how much they like violence. Well, speaking of things that were approved in your household, that also apparently extended to books and a subset of books published by a specific publisher who weren't really a publisher. I'm not making much sense there, but it's about as much sense as this clip is going to make. Sing a little song about Teraline, Teraline made the St. Michael way. Nothing's ever wrong about Teraline, Teraline made the St. Michael way. So come to Marks and Spencer and look at the fine display of fabulously beautiful, wonderful Teraline made the St. Michael way. Okay, that was, as you might have gathered, an absolutely brilliant advert of the 60s telling you how wonderful it is to buy Terry Lean from St. Michael at Marks and Spencer. But it wasn't the only <laughs> thing you could buy from St. Michael. Joel, take us to the counter. Marks and Spencer's published books. And this is the thing that I'd forgotten they did. And then I realised not only did Marks and Spencer's publish 
published books, but I think most of the books in my house were from Marks and Spencers. It's not like Tesco's where they've got books by Penguin and Transworld in them. They were Marks and Spencer books under the St. Michael brand, the same people who made your pants. And we had loads of them. In fact, I think most of our bookshelves were St. Michael books. It's an odd thing. My family were middle class, but we were sort of newly middle class. Like one generation back, everyone's working in factories and we're sort of the new... No one in my family had inherited property. No one had been to university. No one had got any A-levels. We're that generation. We're the first people in. And the things middle class people have is books. They have books on shelves. That's what you have. If you've been to college, you come out with a load of books. We didn't. So my parents, like I imagine millions of other sort of Arab East middle class people, bought their books via a broker. And the broker would be someone with a trusted brand. So we went to the library. We got loads of books out from the library. But those went back because that's what you do. You've read the book. You give it back. But the books that you kept on your shelf, and this is true of my family, it's not true of my wife's family, the books you kept on your shelf were useful books and books with a brand on the side that you trusted. So we had all the AA guides, AA, Book of British Towns, Book of British Butterflies, those things. We had Reader's Digest because they were a trusted brand. They would have books of things. All loads of books from Book Club Associates, that book club that would send you the editor's choice. And that's where you'd get your reference books, your Book of Brewer's Face and Fable and Halliwell's Film Guide and things and dictionaries and things. So all those books would be there. But the books we had that were fun were all St. Michael. And they were batshit because it was the 70s and the early 80s. And St. Michael published what would sell. And what sold was sub Eric von Daniken woo, books of ghosts and UFOs. We had books of astrology, star signs, mysteries of the universe. And I was obsessed by it. And occasionally I'd get bought presents and they would be St. Michael books and they would be like an anthology of science fiction stories, all of which were massively unsuitable for children about pneumatic sex robots and things, all sorts of things from weird tales that have been just compiled by someone, God knows who was in charge of Marks and Spencer's books, putting this stuff out and it had this trusted label on it that said, this is a good book, the seams won't fall apart. And if you don't like it and you haven't washed it, you can probably bring it back that feeling of sort of this is respectable and someone's checked this someone's made sure this is satisfying just as good as a marks and spencer's turkey roll but weirdly the books were mad i mean certainly the ones we had were on because me and my dad quite liked esoterica and things so we had ghosts and things i had a book of ufos some michael book of ufo encounters or something and I learned it off by heart. It was just, it was like, like a history book. And there was, it was that lovely thing that you used to have like the Osborne books where it was just factual. There was no question that anyone was delusional <laughs> or that these might be made up stories. So I took this as read and I went to, remember being about nine and going to my teacher and saying, I don't want to do the Vikings. Can I do a project on UFO abductions? And just literally copying out this Marks and Spencer's book about the Hopkinsville goblin encounter and the men in black, like a David Icke project, which I then illustrated and put sugar paper cover round. And my teacher had to go, very good, you've literally written the maddest thing. All right, Mulder. Well, that was the key thing about them, was they were officially gift books, which meant they were kind of like a whole range of presents in one book that you could give to somebody. You know, they're interested in X and Y. Here's the best of it all compiled together. That's a quite a handy thing to give to kids at that age. I had a couple of them, which I'll come back to, but my main memory of them is there were so many celebrity endorsement ones, usually of misprints, <laughs> with 
it's the weirdest celebrities imaginable. If he thinks like oh, yeah. Patrick McEwen's big book of blunders, where it have a f- that didn't mainly exist, but you know, for the sake of argument, a photo of him on the cover with a speech bubble saying only from St. Michael. <laughs> and it would be Dennis Parsons would have compiled them, the person who did all the made up. God, the shock. I had one of those, and it was, yeah, it was sort of John Pertwee's local paper howlers or something from St. <laughs> Michael. And I was reading them out to my dad and just laughing, and he just said to me, he said, you know, some of these will be made up. And I went, what? And he said, yeah, because that one's too good to be true. That's impossible. And then literally my world fell apart. I said, but John Pertwee said it's <laughs> real. It was the first chink in the armour of going, they might have been published to make money. They produced loads of these. And I think back and I remember starting to get book tokens and going to Smith's on my own and buying stuff. And I remember... My dad getting slightly... My dad's an intelligent man. He was a he was a sub-editor, good with words, and he was like the first white-collar guy in his family. But he, he's not stupid, and he's a big reader. But I remember him being slightly nervous of what I might buy when I went to Roach Smith's, because I could buy anything. I remember coming back with the Osborne Book of the Future and him going, this is this is just nonsense. This is this is They don't know what's going to happen in the future. Him being quite cross that I'd wasted my pocket money on it. Because... <laughs> and I now look back and think, it's because it didn't have the imprimatur of the Reader's Digest or St. Michael... It was kind of, but you could buy anything. And yet the, the irony of going, but all the St. Michael books we've bought are about spontaneous human combustion and Borley Rectory. So <laughs> as in like, they're not the most trustworthy sources. But we really, I, I learned my, my sort of star sign, uh, my sun sign chart and things, but all that sort of very 70s woo, that the Yuri Gallery stuff that was totally accepted back then. And I learned it all from St. Michael books because they were just part of the mainstream. But weirdly, I think they gave it an authority that it shouldn't have had and probably distorted my brain as a kid going, they wouldn't lie, they make pants. They're incredibly, very sort of grounded people. Well, I've seen quite a few of them today because I've been trying to identify them. I did identify one that I had, but I saw a number of things like there's one called Party Faces in the early 80s, which kind of got a cut price human league girls on the front. So they did all kinds of things like that. But (laughs) the two I had that I really remember were there was a St. Michael Book of Sharks, which I was given in the wake of Jaws Mania, where it it profiled them all. So they were going to fight each other, you know, the, the hammerhead shark's number of teeth and so on so you could almost like, like a top trumps yes you could pit shark against shark <laughs> but the one i really remember which took a while to identify was beyond the stars tales of adventure in time and space where the cover art and the title mash up star wars battlestar galactica and battle beyond the stars the one nobody remembers in a kind of let's hope the lawyers won't notice any of this kind of way and inside it's all like philip k I think dick I had and that one. C. Clark. i think it's, i had that it's not for yeah, kids it was at all. Brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant because you bought it. And again, you forget, a bit like I was saying about there weren't any cartoons on. It took a while for space stuff to catch up with Star Wars, for anything good to come out. So basically, you just, anything that looked like it might be a Star Wars spin-off or a, or a Blake 7 spin-off or Doctor Who, buy anything with a robot on the front. And I remember, I think I had that one. And you opened it up and it was this incredible speculative fiction from sort of, from Weird Tales or something. It was incredibly highbrow science fiction. I was going, oh God, this isn't about robots and space cowboys. This is nonsense and complicated and adult but it was packaged like it would appeal to kids I had I, one of my most loved books which wasn't from St Michael that I did I bought it with my own money was a book called Sci-Fi Now I think it's an octopus but by Alan Frank who was the Daily Star TV and film, a film critic and it was just a history of sci-fi movies but it had C-3PO on the front so I bought it and of course the history of sci-fi movies if you buy it just after Star Wars is full of Solaris La Planète Sauvage I don't know the Andromeda Strain incredibly grown up Soylent Green because science fiction was speculative and for adults until Star Wars claimed it for kids 
So it was full of all these films that I desperately wanted to see and all these incredibly adult photos from like Clockwork Orange and things. But I picked it up and it was it was for me. It was very weird. You picked up a lot of stuff because it had sci-fi trappings on the front and actually turned out to be this doorway to a very adult world of quite grown-up science fiction that I found a little bit frightening, I think. Okay, well, that gives us yet again another convenient pathway into your next choice because that's more or less exactly the same thing. It's something that was kind of intended, well, not quite for adults, but kids got hold of it and that's where the problem started and that's where this movie came from you've had too much to drink again yeah i know that and promise me we'll play that awful game anymore i am the main control fate is in my hands i impart you a holy man I have acquired many magic spells and charms, the greatest of which is the graven eye of Timur. But I also have a sword, which I only use should my magic fail. Okay, that was a promo for Mazes and Monsters, CBS 1982. You might have recognised one of the voices in that, but I'm not saying who it is just yet. Joel, what was happening here? Mazes and Monsters, again, actually, this is it. I watched it on television because it was about Dungeons and Dragons. And nothing was about Dungeons and Dragons. I liked Dungeons and Dragons. I played it. And there was a movie on about it. But of course, it wasn't a good movie <laughs> about it. It had been made as part of a moral panic. And the most amazing thing about Mazes and Monsters is it's based on a thing that literally doesn't exist, which is the idea that if you start playing Dungeons and Dragons, you'll become schizophrenic. Is that classic sort of video nasty style panic or video game style panic not that you're schizophrenic that's a problem and therefore that's the problem but more that for some reason a video game or a game will turn you into someone with mental health issues and it's about someone who who can't tom hanks a uh, young Tom Hanks plays the lead character who plays a, a role-playing game and stops being able to tell reality from fantasy and then goes mad. And it's based on a real-life case, but a real-life case that was disproved and discredited almost like a week later. But the person who wrote it wrote it in two days after the news story broke in case someone else wrote a film about it. <laughs> so it's based on the initial spasm of panic about Dungeons & Dragons. And it went into production and got as far as my television before anyone and said that's not what happens it's about people in unventilated rooms throwing dice but yeah it's an astonishingly mad film but again i watched it because it was about a thing i was interested in and as a kid the things i was interested in weren't on tv ever you forget that that pop music wasn't in the papers and video games weren't anywhere if you're into role-playing games no or comics no one mentioned it we forget we're in a nerdocracy now where everyone has to have an opinion on the scarlet witch that wasn't how it was. There would be an article on Batman in the papers once every six years and you'd cut it out and put it in a scrapbook because the things I was interested in weren't ever talked about anywhere except amongst me and my friends. And Mazes and Monsters, someone said, there's a Dungeons and Dragons film on TV. We're all going to stay in and watch it. So we all did and went, that was awful because <laughs> it's a terrible made-for-TV movie. I mean, Tom Hanks, it's worth seeing because it's got Tom. It's like BMX Bandits is worth seeing because it's Nicole Kidman. It's worth seeing young Tom Hanks. That is true, though, about the sort of paucity of representation, like you say, of genre interest before, until relatively recently. Because one thing I really remember is you mentioned the Clockwork Orange in the previous section, and the fact yeah. that you would occasionally see, it was always the photo of Alex hitting Dim at the water's edge for being booked <laughs> by sci-fi. You say nothing more about it. There's this weird aura about it being, well, we thought it was banned in those days. 
you know, we didn't yes. know the full story. But I remember in the Independent magazine, now I found this in school, in kind of the reception area in school, there was a feature in the Independent where they did the, the RSC to the stage version in 1989 with Phil Daniels as Alex. And I think yeah. you two did the music. And it's a big feature about Clockwork Orange. It's the only time I've seen anything written about it. And they kind of quietly filleted that feature out of the magazine and took it home. I've still got it somewhere, yeah. actually. But but now you only have to you only have to click film on Google and you get a Clockwork Orange coming up straight away. I've got scrapbooks of this stuff. And what it would be would be that you get into something and no one would talk about it. So you'd uh, this is after video tape came out you'd stay up all night because the late show had a thing about watchmen on it and you went oh something about comics and you'd tape it and then watch it and learn it but it wasn't the things you were into weren't then discussed as important it was niche and even pop culture itself was off in a corner the reason people bought the nme was because there was nothing about pop in the paper i remember we used to get the sun so i used to cut up the bizarre page in the sun if a band i liked were referred to in it and cut it out, and I'd got the enemy and the melody maker, but we'd have the sun and the mail, I think, in our house, and we'd cut up if they got mentioned. And then I've got these scrapbooks full of literally just maybe their name. There wasn't an article. If a Pet Shop Boys equivalent came out with a, with an album, you didn't get an article on the Pet Shop Boys and a profile of them in the Sunday magazine. Pop culture was really, really niche. I remember there being an article on the Dark Crystal in the Sunday Times magazine. I remember it so vividly. This is part of your childhood, because they'd covered something I was interested in. And I cut it out. A lovely picture on the front of Kira the Gelfling with Would You Believe Kermit's My Dad? Lovely front cover. But I had that in a scrapbook because it was so important that the Muppets were in something, <laughs> that they talked about a thing I'd heard of because adult culture was all about, I don't know, Henry Kissinger or something. There was no crossover between the things I was interested in and the media. So when, God almighty, the number of scrapbooks I've got with an article called The Day Comics Grew Up because Dark Knight had come out and I cut out every single one because someone was talking about Batman for the first time ever. Amazes and Monsters is part of that adult culture trying to get to grips with something I was into. So it didn't matter that it was shit. I still watched it. And yet there was that weird thing about things like that, even to an extent video nasties, kind of, even if there's was moral panic early on, would a bit later on get co-opted in a way that bore no relation to what they really were, but the influence was taken. <laughs> there was a Dungeons Dragons cartoon there was Nightmare, mm. you know, all kinds of things like that, where they bore a surface resemblance to what had been verboten a couple of years earlier. And that's yes, kind of how yeah. people used to bring these things, well, I might as well say under their control, was to turn it into something that they found palatable, where, you know, to leave the actual enthusiasts out in the cold, but turn it into something that everyone could jump on. And you knew when someone was one of you, was one of your types who was into your same kind of things. I remember the excitement about the adventure game, because the adventure game on TV mm. was clearly someone who was into hitchhikers, who was into video games, text-only adventure games, and was into Dungeons & Dragons, who was into role-playing. And I could tell that the team who made that, four children, were one of us. And they were into, he was into the same kind of, is it Patrick Dowling? Was into the same kind of stuff I was into. So I loved the adventure game, not because of the adventure game, but because it was a little clue of saying, this is made by someone who gets what you get. Because we're never going to do a programme on television about your interests. I think about it now, about how television struggles, sort of CBBC and things, struggles to talk to kids about the stuff they're interested in. Because kids are into video games. And video games are seen as the enemy of TV. So they won't talk to them. And if, if they put a programme on television in which was just people talking about video games kids would watch it there's a feeling that the the new thing is a rival 
to the media rather than if you embraced it and said Rob Manuel said this should be a Twitch stream that the BBC sponsor that you could just watch people play video games but you knew it was a Blue Peter presenter watching it so you could trust your kids in front of it <laughs> but they won't do that because they're the baddies and it's that strange thing with old media sets new media new games against it and doesn't trust it whereas and a few years later as you said with Nightmare and things it's completely co-opted and the thing that was a monster suddenly isn't a monster anymore I've been quite shocked at how frightened maybe it's the first time I've ever had that feeling that the grown-ups were frightened of my culture mazes and monsters was the first time i went oh you think this is dangerous and obviously i had to have the conversations with my mum and dad afterwards saying you're not doing anything dangerous there's nothing satanic going on i went no it's me and lee and gavin and we're just throwing dice it's fine but yeah you suddenly realized that you suddenly felt that you were into drill music or punk or something well that's i mean circling back to something you mentioned just before which is the idea that now you know particularly after one division scarlet witch is a household name but i remember having marvel <laughs> comics taken off me like ones with Cloak and Dagger and the Punisher, which maybe, maybe arguably were a little bit beyond the age I should have been reading them. I mean, I was fine with them, but, you know, sometimes they were judged to have gone too far. And yet now, you know, there's been a, an actual kid series based on Cloak and Dagger, so just goes to show. It's really funny. I remember saying that one of the things I found so exciting about, I realised yeah, I was a big 2000 AD head. Uh, it was my dream to work for them, and I never did. And I remember going to see the Judge Dredd film, the Carl Urban one that, that came out, and getting so excited and I came out and we were all all the, the old 2000 AD fans of Bidsit we came out and went that was a bit grown up and it was this lovely feeling I remember laughing and saying that's a 21 certificate film as in even if you're 18 it feels too grown up and that's what those comics felt like when you read comics they felt like they'd been no matter what you read at that period there was a real thrill of feeling like you were reading something contraband dangerous that was intended for an older a mythical older cousin of some sort and I said that's the thing that gets misunderstood about how thrilling Star Wars was as it was the first film I'd seen that didn't have dancing animals in it it's the first film i saw where everyone in it was taking it seriously gritted jaws and an arm comes off and you go oh this is clearly for my older cousins it's not for me raise the lost ark a head blows up they were full of little contraband moments that said your parents sort of won't approve of you seeing this and it was so important whether it's 2000 ad or, or star wars or whatever that it should feel the fact that just 17 magazine was read by 14 year olds it should feel like it's for an age slightly above you and i loved that and I think, yeah, there's something funny about Mazes and Monsters being a little clue that what I was getting into was seen as dangerous. And I never wanted to rebel. I've not got that sort of, I was, I was a good kid. But I went, oh God, what? Playing with the lead figurines. That's seen as dangerous. Whoa, this is good. And that's, that's your gateway drug to insisting you're into Slayer. That's why the heavy metal kids like role-playing games. It's the same thrill. Well, there was a huge panic. It wasn't a very long one, but there really was one. I remember the two things that really stick in my mind. There was a feature on Look Northwest about children being psychologically <laughs> damaged by role-playing games. And the kids on it had clearly just made stuff up. It's like, well, oh, circling yeah. back to you, have you ever seen the BBC documentary about video nasties where the reporter just makes up some films and asks children, says, have you seen Hospital yeah. of Horrors? And he goes, oh yeah, there's loads of blood in it. Basically this, there was a boy saying, and when they tried to go to sleep at night, it was hallucinating orcs. And I thought, no, no you didn't. But the other thing was, yeah. I remember a teacher in school <laughs> coming into the classroom while some kids were reading, do you remember there was a magazine called White Dwarf, which is a gaming magazine? Yes, yeah, yeah. And he, he marched up to the he'd snatched it off one of them and said these are being in the news i don't want to see them again as yeah. if it was like penthouse it, or something yeah and it's it's that same thing but it happens again and again it happens with video games it happened with the, the there was a briefly the, the fear in america that harry potter was satanic and it's this thing and actually what all that does is it makes kids go oh because it's a safe place to experiment with shocking your parents and I've, i remember not
not planning to shock my parents, but finding that almost everything I got into would in some way elicit a sort of concern or disapproval until you sort of proved it was okay. But I remember them being very concerned about role-playing games because, again, it would be in the Daily Mail. It would say it was dangerous. And it's quite an interesting thing. You should always think back whenever you're worried about what your kids are into. Think that there will be an equivalent in your childhood that seems so incredibly innocent. Like, like you said, like nightmare. And you go, do you remember people were scared of this? People were scared of the internet. People were scared of Call of Duty. But Mazes and Monsters is, is a, a salutary lesson in what happens if you make an entire film based on the initial overreaction to something. Well, there's one thing I need to ask about it, which is when we were discussing this, you mentioned WizKids as well, which did not really yeah. have an accurate depiction of child computer prodigies. Was Tom Hanks's portrayal of a role player at all accurate in your view? No, because it was a portrayal of a man with mental health issues. It was really, it was that strange. They were going, this is a film about a schizophrenic. It's not a film about a role player. And it's really strange. You go, well, this is actually a film about mental illness, which is genuinely somewhere in there is an interesting movie to be made about someone who's destabilised by it. Also, the idea, the central idea that children who live vivid fantasy lives are in danger. And you go, that's just children. <laughs> All children. That's what's delightful about them. That's why they have soft toys. That's what Winnie the Pooh is about. That's what Toy Story is about. It's the most wholesome thing children can have is an overactive imagination and a very, very vivid fantasy life. The reason that, that, that role playing games I don't play role playing games anymore but god if someone asked me to I probably would do I haven't played for, for donkey's years but the fun of it was being able to stay a kid and stay telling each other stories and living in a fantasy world not for the bad reasons not for sort of psychologically damaging reasons but isn't it nice to play let's pretend it's what I'm a, I'm a writer that's all I bloody do sit as someone said sit in a small room and hallucinate that's what your job is you weren't driven to that by whiz kids were you I was it's mainly it's whiz kids it, it did everything <laughs> that, that's what did it. again that was a desperate thing I watched that because it had kids in it and they had computers that's all it needed it didn't need to be good i didn't need to i don't i don't remember a thing about it apart from i need to watch this program i remember explaining it to my dad once i was watching blake seven and he came in and said this is terrible he watched it for 10 minutes but this is terrible and i said is it and he went it's just the acting's awful the special effects are terrible it's just awful and i said but it's in space and that was all it needed to be it needed to not be set in a school and that would do. And he was being unfair about Black 7 because it's quite good. I remember being really, really annoyed. I went, don't you understand? I have to watch this. It's in space. Okay, well, I don't know if WizKids was actually covered by your final choice. I'm fairly sure Mazes and Monsters wasn't, but pretty much everything else that was around in the, basically from the 50s or the 80s, appeared in this unusual toy form. Let's just cue an advert in, and then I'll try and explain what on earth I was trying to say in that link. See Masters of the Universe in a Viewmaster viewer. Know how we make it look so real? Viewmaster 3D artists draw lots of pictures. See, one in the back, one in the middle, and one in the front. When you see them all together in 3D, the characters look so real, you think you could reach in and touch them. With Viewmaster, you can collect lots of program reels on cards and in gift sets, like Smurf and Shirt Tales, each sold separately. Viewmaster gift set with 3D viewer and a Masters of the Universe adventure on three reels. Okay, that was very obviously an advert for Viewmaster Reels of Masters of the Universe. But if you weren't that sure whether you wanted to watch three whole reels of He-Man and Company, there was a try-before-you-buy option. Joel, what am I referring to? There were Viewmaster demonstration discs. When you bought a Viewmaster, it came with... I don't I didn't even know if it came... God, we had a Viewmaster. It must have been bought when I was very small. So I don't remember what came with it. Possibly we had a Rupert disc. So maybe early enough it would have been the Rupert... The, the puppet Rupert from TV. So that may be the one we had. But it came with a, with a set. But it came also with a disc. A single disc that said, there are other things in this range. And I thought there was a standard... There was only one. Because that's the one I had. And it had one picture from each of, say, eight reels... 
as a way of saying, and the other things you can do is to go to these other wonderful worlds. Because Viewmaster was a 3D viewer, a stereoscopic viewer, like a Victorian piece of technology, but a plastic version of it that you pulled a little hand and went, ba-doing, and it brought the next thing up from a reel of stereoscopic images. And it was great. But once you'd seen the Rupert one and been scared of Raggedy and flipped around it and read the story, then there was nothing to do. So I looked at the demonstration reel. The demonstration reel had, God, and what it seared into my mind. It's a bit like the images from the cursed video in The Ring, as in they've got this haunted quality because I only saw one image of them. There was a bullfight. There was a some Formula One cars. There was someone in a very narrow blue cave of stalactites in a helmet. Again, extreme sports, parachuting <laughs> and things. Canadian Mounted Police, possibly. But I remember watching this and it wasn't a story. It was one image from each, but it said you can buy more of these. And of course, I never did buy more of them because that was unthinkable that you'd ever have enough money to buy more Viewmaster so I exhausted the thing that we had, which was a, a reel of Rupert the Bear. And then I looked at the demonstration reel again and again and again and again, a single stereoscopic image of a bullfight again and again and again. And this is partly about Viewmaster and partly about that particular 70s, 80s boredom where you can't just get more of something, that you reach the end of the one Super 8 film you've got. So you watch it again because there's nothing else on. But I got obsessed by the Viewmaster demonstration disc. I've looked up now and there's loads of them, apparently. They're mainly about, annoyingly, about scenes of Alpine splendour and American landmarks and things. But this one was one of each and a variety of things. Yeah, there were loads because I've actually got here. I mean, I don't have a Viewmaster anymore, annoyingly. But I still have, as I mentioned last time Samira Ahmed was on, my Space 1999 discs. I appear to have Dusty, the 70s public information film Keep Britain Tidy character. Lone Huckleberry Finn and Friends one. I don't know where the other two have gone. Sadly, I don't have what the other one that's actually written on the packet, because you used to get packets written to keep them in, which is the Waltons, the separation. Now, who would want a Viewmaster of the Waltons? And what I remember of it is, can you guess what happened in it? Grandma's old beau was coming to town. Well, there's a turn up for the books, but I have a demo disc in here. I've been trying to work out what's on it, and so far I've picked out... You hold it up to the light. Well, the things I can make out are what appears to be Disneyland because Disneyland had to be on there. Yeah. What looks like Mickey and Goofy falling through dimensions. <laughs> What's very clearly Zorro, sort of 50 Zorro, some nondescript drawn animation things. It's a kind of off-brand knockoff Pinocchio, which I assume was their own drawing of it. And also a cowboy tied up in front of, you know, that old rope with a candle burning through it thing and the thing about to fall yeah. down on him. There's one of them. Now, what was that Candle from? That's Damocles. even weird. The Waltons. Well, they'd have... You're right. It would be on... It takes us back to Gene Kelly's Jack and the Beanstalk and things. It would be on-brand and off-brand stuff. So there would be a Disney in there, but there'd also be other stuff. And I think one of the discs you could... Demo discs was cartoon favourites or something, which would be... There'd be a, a, a Top Cat and a, and, a, and a Mickey Mouse and things in there. Our one was very much a... something very specifically, because they were made by gaff i think there's something very specifically your parents slides of an exotic holiday they had before they had you feel about these things because you forget this as well you only ever saw photographs in printed form or the television and there was something really weird about Viewmaster because it's like a slide or a computer screen and it's backlit. So the colours are really vivid. So you hold it up to the light. And so they look like slides. They look like uh, holiday slides, like ectochrome holiday slides. And the weird thing is when they did cartoons, sometimes they did cartoons as drawings. So I had a Top Cat that was 3D. So it was, they, I imagine they just done layers like a multiplane camera, Disney multiplane camera. So that was quite satisfying. But sometimes they'd make models of 
drawings like that slightly unreal way the Moomins cartoon was. So it was haunting. And my brother always said it looked like it had really happened. <laughs> so the really scary thing was we had a Winnie the Pooh one that was Disney's Winnie the Pooh. But instead of it being the cartoon that you knew, the fun Paul Winchell Tigger thing, they'd made models. They'd made dioramas, a bit like you might... Maybe they were from Disneyland, I don't know. They were dioramas of Pooh getting stuck in Rabbit's house. But they weren't anything I'd ever seen. They weren't the H. Shepard illustrations. They weren't the cartoon I knew. They were this weird thing that you went, physically, this is somewhere. And it had a sort of slightly haunting bagpuss models. These are in a dusty cupboard somewhere. Someone made this weird-looking Winnie the Pooh. I was obsessed by and haunted by anything where you were staring at it for ages. Because you did, because you only had this to look at. You stared at a single image that was supposed to be a frame from a cartoon, but had been made physically. Like how weird Peppa Pig toys are. In that they're meant to be drawings. They're not meant to have the eyes are on the wrong side. There's something weird about they would make 3D versions of two-dimensional things. And it was like staring. It was like something about H.P. Lovecraft. You were staring into a, a ninth dimension which would send you insane. Because Winnie the Pooh is meant to be flat. That's the rules. He's meant to be flat. And ours in this box, this tiny box, as a haunted poo who had dimensions that he was never meant to have. I'm now scared myself. But yeah, other, otherwise the disc just had bullfighters on it. It was haunting. Never <laughs> were. Genuinely, there were countless thousands of these things. And like you say, some on brand, some off brand. But what surprises me is some of the things that didn't make it onto there that you think should have been. I mean, there were ones like, there was a Magic Roundabout set, which forget ever yeah. buying that on eBay. That goes for a fortune. But there weren't any Gordon Murray ones. There weren't any small films ones you mentioning Bagpuss made me think of that the one that really surprised me given that it was just still photographs for five minutes there was never a Teddy Edward one huge range of books but no Viewmaster yeah it was really strange because I suppose that they have to be able to make stereoscopic actually weirdly everything did look like Teddy Edward it looked bright (laughs) slide pictures of models and it was a haunted sort of strange world but what there's a weird thing about staring at every reel was eight images or something telling you the story so you stared at those images again and again and again they went in and there's a repetition to that sort of childhood that there isn't with streamed content or with constantly changing video games and things you would have a thing and I suppose it's our version of when you go to the Bethnal Green Museum of Childhood and they go this is Queen Victoria's one toy and you go, what that was all you had you just or, or or stories of people in the war who like took one toy with them and you go wow weirdly we had that ours was was entertainment the version of that was Netflix <laughs> Netflix for me was eight images of haunted multi-dimensional Winnie the Pooh which I stared at hoping they would reveal something and a demo disc of Formula One cars I would really really like a Netflix Viewmaster demo disc with scenes from Russian Doll <laughs> Jessica Jones the toys that made us yeah actually is this is this the greatest new thing you could do is that, is that the greatest compliment is that you should do something new in culture and there should be a Viewmaster disc of it I mean WandaVision would be amazing <laughs> in Viewmaster form it would be completely appropriate it would be lovely god I really want one now I want a Wonder. The thing is, how would you do? Because I always had that really cut down version of the narrative as well, with like two senses for each scene. How would you do Wonder Vision like that? It would be great. Yeah, <laughs> I should, maybe there'd be a disc per episode, so it would change. I, I, it'd be great, wouldn't it? I'm now thinking how much, how great that would look. They missed a trick. I 
also, even talking about this, I want to go and find that Viewmaster. They were great. It was a really good toy and it lasted for ages. That's a 1950s toy that was still being sold way into the 80s. It was until kids could actually have video at home. You didn't have a TV in your room. It was impossible to watch these things. It was impossible to video stuff. Again, and this was your stuff. So I had a Top Cat one. I loved Top Cat, but it was on television when the BBC decided it was on television. Whereas up in my room was some Top Cat I could watch whenever I wanted to. That was a real luxury, even if it was just eight frames of it and it was a bit weird. And also, was it actually called Top Cat on it or Boss Cat? I think it was Top Cat. I think it was properly, <laughs> properly registered. It wasn't. Boss Cat's different. Boss Cat's way... I love Boss Cat being more gangster. It feels like it should be... It's a slightly more Scorsese-ish thing, isn't it, Boss Cat? <laughs> Isn't he, isn't, he, isn't he called Don Gatto or something in French, which makes it even more gangster? Well, I've just noticed on the demonstration disc, I don't actually even know which language this is. It's got it in different languages around the edge of it, and one of them is brilliantly Disco Demos Tratavito. Oh, Three separate words. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I see that incredibly global as well. It came from stereoscopic tourist views. It's the same thing as when you get vir- the first thing you get on a virtual reality helmet is a tour of Venice or whatever. It comes from that thing. And really quickly, yeah, that's the most boring thing you can do with it is to be somewhere else. <laughs> it's, you you want Joe ninety? You want I want stuff? You want? fantasy in there it's I, I always get really annoyed when when they dig up footage of uh, it's 1910 and here's astonishing color footage of the tower of london and you go but the tower of london looks the same now that's the whole point i want astonishing restored footage of someone's cereal cupboard they always point cameras it's stonehenge it's gonna always look like stonehenge don't ever point a camera at something that's permanent <laughs> <laughs> the Matterhorn in the 70s is the Matterhorn now. Okay, well, I'll just end by asking one question. Out of all the TV programmes you've worked on, which do you really wish it had a Viewmaster set? Oh, God. I would like, let's think, I'd really like a Viewmaster set of Charlie Brooker's How TV Ruined Your Life. <laughs> And it'd be brilliant and there'd be one on each subject like sort of acquis- acquisitiveness and greed and it would just mainly be uh, the one you really want is the one that's uh, that had lots of clips from threads in it yeah that'd be great actually Viewmaster of Threads would be amazing wouldn't it we watched so much apocalyptic TV for that because it's Charlie completely underrated series it's all on YouTube I think someone put it out I loved working on that show because it was just Charlie moaning about telly and also celebrating it which is what he's best at but yeah let's do the Viewmaster of How TV Ruined Your Life as long as it doesn't have a close up of that weird scary thing on the screen in the background which was supposed to be interference but looked like the shutters from the Trumpton clock going up and down I'll be happy Joel it's been brilliant thank you thanks for asking it's been brilliant fun can't help thinking about me like Tim Worthington a big book full of old articles giving a new twist looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.